0: Welcome to No Challenges Remaining on Day 9 of the U.S. Open 2020. I'm Ben Rothenberg, delighted on this show to bring you an interview with Pam Shriver, return guest to NCR. Longtime contributor to ESPN's tennis broadcasts, who this year is covering the US Open as best she can as part of the ESPN team from her home in Los Angeles, staying home, as she'll explain here, to take care of her family during this continuing pandemic, not able to make the trip to New York this time. Pam has a lot of insights on what it's like watching tennis from afar after having been the ultimate sort of up-close tennis reporter for so long and on recent developments in the tennis world and just results and things like that in tennis. Some of the tennis politics has come up, too. Pam is very well-positioned to talk about. There's a great column that was written by another past guest of NCR, the Los Angeles Times' is Helene Elliott, who profiled Pam recently, about what she's been doing during this Open. So I'll put a link to that in the bio, and I hope that you enjoy this conversation with Pam Shriver. Very excited to be joined on this episode of No Challenges Remaining by Pam Shriver of ESPN. Pam, the U.S. Open is going on. You are not at the U.S. Open, but I do see a lot of U.S. Open regalia behind you on your Zoom. Can you explain to people listening what I can see the shiny objects behind you?
1: Yeah, yeah, well, I was fortunate enough to... um... I've won five US Open doubles trophies and and got to the finals of a single. So I have those six trophies behind me. Um, So when I've been working remotely for ESPN and they come to me from on camera, this is basically in the smallest little office. I've got three kids all home doing school. So I was able to double door at my master bedroom and then my office is off my master bedroom. So I felt Like this was the most secure, safe place. Yeah. Basically I had to clear out like a bunch of paperwork and um, like I use it as storage, but I realized I needed to dress up my background a little bit if I was going to be, you know, working remotely. So I've had a few set changes (laughs) through the first eight days of the tournament, but I've really enjoyed watching this U S open. And I just hats off to everybody who worked around the clock for all the months leading up to it, to Mm. be able to, Take this U.S. Open and a uh, the first major played during the pandemic.
0: Yeah, I'll talk to I will talk to you a bit about the tournament, But first, I want to just get to your your role in this. So you obviously have been a part of the ESPN team for a long time. This is a very unique year in 2020 in all sorts of different directions. You're obviously home in LA doing remote hits for for ESPN from home. And you know you're, you're just on the phone with your colleagues earlier. Still very much plugged into the into the coverage into the team. Uh, but what made you and it's this is piggybacking off of a great column that Helene. Uh, Elliot did for the LA Times today that was talking about you as well. But what made you decide not to be at the US Open this year? What were the factors that went into that?
1: Well, I think it's similar factors that go into everybody's decision right now, whether you're Ash Barty or whether you're Rafa Nadal, you look at your own personal situation, you weigh the risks. In, in my family, I have I'm a single mom of three teenagers, one with underlying conditions. My oldest son has type 1 diabetes. My kid's dad, George Lazenby, just turned 81 on the weekend. While he doesn't live in my house, he comes up and sees the kids every day. So he's in our family bubble. So he has underlying and our housekeeper of over 20 years who didn't work the first couple months of the pandemic, but is now she's like a member of our family. She has underlying Mm. and she's working right now in my house, you know, mask on and um, everybody's being as safe as they can. And I just felt I couldn't take myself and go to work in New York. And I was really grateful that during this time, ESPN allowed me to work remotely. I mean, it's nowhere near the same amount of work. It's very different, but I've been very happy still being a part of the US Open, uh, the ESPN's coverage for the US Open.
0: We know you as one of the hardest workers in television, seeing you on site. I think you're iconic for your your tennis shoes or your running shoes that you wear around site because you're always on the move. You're always covering outer courts, always getting to coaches, to people, very quickly, you're very much, you know, doing the shoe leather kind of work on the ground for the television side, which I know a lot of reporters see and admire and recognize. How different is it for you trying to do all that remotely or still trying to, to have something to give to the tournament without being up close? Because you're the ultimate sort of up close reporter, I feel like, on the on the tennis side.
1: Yeah, that's been one of the things I really hope through Zoom format or through the kind of formats we've gotten used to since middle of March that I'd be able to contribute a little more with interviews. I have teed up something for the Jen Brady semifinal. It looks like Stella Sampras will be able to join us, um, yes. maybe even in the, during the match and talk about Jen Brady as a college player. Hope it works out. I've tried to keep some annual interviews going. Like I've enjoyed talking to Adam Silver the last couple of years in the president's box. it looked like that was teed up. And now maybe everybody, I mean, you can imagine who's busier than a commissioner of a league whose playoffs are going on now. And it's kind of crazy what's happening in the sports world this past weekend when you, could watch U.S. Open tennis, NBA playoffs, the Kentucky Derby, and the PGA Tour yeah. championships in Atlanta. I mean, yeah. we, we may never yeah. see anything like it. So understand that everybody's really busy. But, you know, I think so far for me, probably one of the better things I was able to do was um, help the studio the other day after Novak's situation situation. They were able to come to me for a couple minutes of kind of my overview of what happened. And I kind of took a, a approach of more 30,000 feet instead of getting in the weeds of what had just happened, because that had already been dissected for 20 minutes nonstop or half hour. Yeah. So I don't know. I, I, I feel actually, when I am on, I feel really good about my work and the perspective I have not being in the bubble and not being surrounded by US Open 24-7, that I actually have um, a different view and it's, it's, it's been fine.
0: Yeah, I actually wanted to ask you more about that view. Like, what are you seeing about the tournament from a zoomed out perspective that maybe you don't see when you're very much in the weeds on the ground?
1: Well, one of the things I've noticed as being a TV viewer is I feel like the US Open is coming across really well to the viewer. I've spoken to a lot of my friends who aren't are watching just like you and I are, and they're enjoying the tennis. Mm -hmm. They're enjoying the stories. I think everybody was really, has been needing some distractions from the pandemic. And I think sports has come to the rescue at a good time. I I feel like even though we all know, and we've heard about it so many times, there aren't fans there, but I feel like the way, especially on the big courts, that that ESPN's been able to shoot the action, that you haven't really seen the empty seats. And they also I think the USTA here they're not earning as much money and they're 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 you know, but they were able to spend a lot of money, I think, making the stadium look and have messages that were appropriate of what's going on. And I just feel like we've been able to get closer up to the players, hear from them, hear their noises, hear from the you know, hear the coaching that's going on, which I the, that rule has to change like within the next <laughs> two minutes, please. So I don't know. I just, I think it's come off much better. And I think knock on wood, if they can get through this with only one player testing positive, it's, it's going to be a miracle when you consider where we were two, three months ago.
0: Yeah, I have liked a lot of, especially... I've really enjoyed the views of the players in their suites, too, I guess, which there are more of when there are more players. But seeing the players be fans of each other, just taking in matches from whether it's in their own draw or men watching women, women watching men, whatever it happens to be, having them wa- eat lunch and sit and watch. And you see Osaka's at every Serena match, for example, you see her there all the time. And yeah, I think that part's been really cool. Just seeing the tennis players get to be tennis fans and get to sort of enjoy this very exclusive tennis club that they're members of this week.
1: Well, and I think you bring up a great point that when we were having our ESPN weekly talent calls in the weeks leading up to the Open, we were trying to think about how could we make up for the fact there wasn't going to be 23,000 people screaming for you know Serena Williams to win 24 or screaming for a U.S. win and a tie break in the final set. And, and what we didn't realize totally was what the player suite situation would look like. And to be able to go pan to whoever's corporate suite and to see them what was there has been hilarious shirtless a lot of the time <laughs> what players are maybe eating it's been interesting i thought maybe what we could do is set up some zoom calls yeah. with players that are watching and you know it's been it's hard i think whether you're espn or usta you're just everybody's trying to stay safe everyone has to do what they're in a different way And so, and I hope, hopefully we won't get really good at, at putting on majors um, during a pandemic, like hopefully this is the only U.S. Open, but I think if you went through it a second or third time, you could get more creative Mm -hmm. and the hope was that players would be willing to, to step in and, and, you know, maybe be on our air and, and hear their comments directly and maybe it can still happen.
0: Yeah, no, that would be good. I I've I've seen. Can you imagine what it would have been like for you as a player? I guess you. I'm sure you were at smaller tournaments too, especially you know playing Virginia Slims events or something that maybe were sometimes less attended, and there we was just a lot of the players themselves were a big part of the crowd. Or you're you know at some late night match, and you're watching one of your friends, and Sam's kind of emptied out of this sort of the atmosphere. It's like tennis players playing just for their peers, at least in person. It's it's cool. a cool it's a cool it's yeah. a cool vibe to it. It's it's very different.
1: Well, and what a motivator. I mean, actually, we've talked a lot about what players are actually benefiting and playing better by not having thousands and thousands of people applauding or screaming or cheering. And whether it's Jen Brady or Shelby Rogers or on the men's side, maybe some of these guys who've had trouble getting over the hurdle because of the big three, maybe they'll feel a little more settled than having the adrenaline rush of hearing that crowd. But on the other hand, you kind of look up and you see your peers watching or you see Serena watching or whatever. I mean, that can that can add some pressure. But I feel like everybody's been really focused. The other thing is they're, they're very, much more they don't play to the crowd with mm. their celebrations. Um, so I I've found the competition to be quite clean. And, you know, I kind of wish there was a little more to the racket tap. Uh, sometimes it feels quite cold. And I wish like Serena the other day had had really nice words for Sakari when they are, or Sakari. I'm sorry. They've changed your name on me. During the- <laughs> I,
0: I've, I've struggled with that one too,
1: <laughs> but I, I, I kind of miss not seeing more interaction. I think maybe now the rest of the way we will, because the matches are so big anyway, but overall, yeah. it's no, pretty-
0: there's a, there's a purity to it. You know, no one, you know, people are not doing anything. It'd be interesting to see how someone, He's not there, but someone like a curios who's such a ham and such a showboat would have responded to playing in front of no one. When you can't get applause for hitting a tweener, do you still hit the tweener? You know, do you still go for those sort of things? It could have fundamentally changed his matches.
1: Yeah. Uh, it, interesting What things that we won't know but obviously if he was playing on Ash he could still show off in front of his peers in the suites
0: yeah so, that's true although
1: some might throw things at him who knows
0: <laughs> that's true speaking of Ash actually because we we're recording this on Tuesday af- evening afternoon your time and we did the last match on there was the Zverev Chorich match and you made a joke on Twitter which I appreciated That the chair and fire Avez was on the phone calling to get a better match delivered what what do you what do you make of this men's draw I'll just talk some tennis for a bit yeah. With this huge opportunity, uh, with Djokovic out, this was really the first sort of marquee match, I guess, of or at least of the quarterfinals of Zverev seeing this huge opportunity he has, and the match was tough to watch quality wise. It, it was, was rough. Tough. It, was, it tough. was yeah. Yeah. Just, I think I think someone said to me, for someone who walks around acting so often like sort a lot of a, kind of a, trying wanting to be an alpha, Zverev p- plays like such a beta sometimes. He can be so passive. Uh, I don't really get that.
1: Yeah, it's, it's really so interesting to try and figure out the mental side um, because let's face it, that's what this pretty much is all about. You, yeah. you, you, you kind of look at who's left on the men's side and it's unknown. Who, who can step up and embrace this unbelievable opportunity? Honestly, it could be anybody. Sh- Shapovalov, I've been pretty impressed with his maturity. Um, so I think tonight's match is going to be fascinating. I mean, Zverev, who knows? Some strange things can happen. He can, he can get on fire and he can get through a match like he did today and lift his game and play better. Team, he's another one. I mean, nobody is, to me, of the top couple guys that are left is playing. Their, I think Rublev is kind of an interesting story because of how well he played at the beginning of the year. Yeah. Medvedev, you know, who's going to just play their best tennis at the end of the tournament? But I, I think we're waiting for that, like, barn burner, unbelievable match played in front of nobody. Yeah. we haven't quite had it yet i'm trying to think what match to you stands out the most
0: i think the match the on most the dram- side the most dramatic match was sitzipas Kchorich. oh oh, the, of course that and was, i did that was, up. Yeah. I, yeah i
1: stayed up that was easy for me although i did watch an nba playoff game pause the tennis <laughs> and then went back and finished it late yeah that was it that was the moment was, so far of the tournament
0: yeah not always just because of the quality wasn't bad but the obviously the scoreline drama was pretty
1: yeah the yelling at the dad and knowing all that we know about Tsitsipas and um yeah that was fascinating and that how he recovers um I remember having seven match points in a final fortunately it wasn't a major final because I I don't know whether I would have survived but um still these things can take a long time to get over the next time he gets in a winning situation he better make it routine
0: So I wanted to ask you about this, about your own, talking about this men's show again with your career, because you played at a time, not dissimilar to the big three, where there was a big two in women's tennis, right? With Chrissy and Martina. And you were very often for very long stretches in the top five, but not in that top two. Was there ever a tournament that you had where both of them went out early, or even just one, even just one of them on your half, that must've happened at some point, right? Where one of them in your, when I beat
1: Martina, you know, when they went out, when I beat Martina (laughs) in the quarters in 82, Yeah. that's how Martina got out of the draw then. And then I played, I never played anyone in a semifinal of a major that wasn't a future Hall of Famer. Everyone's in wow. the Hall of Fame. Even most of the quarterfinal opponents I had, that U.S. Open time, it was an exception. I had a really good quarterfinal draw. But, like, the first time I got the semis at Wimbledon, I beat Tracy Austin for the first time. I mean, mm-hmm. so so obviously playing in the middle, right in the heart of the Chrissy Martina era, That was that was – that was tough, but you know what? The benefit is the, those doubles trophies sitting behind me. I mean, at least <laughs> at least I got a benefit in that yeah. I got asked to play doubles with Martina the end of 1980 and the partnership lasted 10 years. And then, you know, the other thing is just, just when maybe I could have snuck in towards the end because I'm like six, seven years younger than they are, Groff's about eight years younger and she starts to come on. And of course she won all of her majors. And then this was now towards the end of my career, I couldn't have beaten too many people by the time Se- Celis came on. Actually, I was still all right when Celis first came on the tour. But, so those were, those were the big four that played during my, my career.
0: Right. But I, I guess I just mean like psychologically talking about what happened with Severio today. I'm, I'm wondering, in your mind, what would it have been like if you were at a major? This, this is a, didn't happen. This is a purely imaginary scenario. But if you were at a major and both Chrissy and Martina lost like fourth round, What would that have done to your mind if you were like, oh my gosh, I can't blow this? Or would you just be like, would you freeze up or would you be emboldened or both? Or how do you you, you Uh, respond to something like that when that kind of opportunity through not your own doing opens up?
1: Yes, well, first off, you would consult with members of your team, including your, because everybody in this era, just about everybody's getting a sports psychiatrist as well. Right. Which has been a great addition to a number of current players. And that would probably be one of the first People you call and you consult with, and you make sure you stay in your lane and you stay doing all the things, and you know it's it's still not you still have to earn everything. Nothing is given to you. Okay, in the end, you know Thomas Johansson winning the Australian Open. Yeah, he was he was given an opportunity. Some of the women who've won majors in the last five years, Panetta playing against um,
0: Vinci, yeah
1: Vinci instead of Serena. I mean that's one of the great opportunities. Ever, and she took advantage of it so you're you're right it's like how do you still get your mind in the right frame no matter if you win a major whether it's the big three or the greats that i played or when the field opens up regardless you still mm-hmm. have to be able to keep it together in order to get it done so if you've and if you've never kept it together to get it done then you're never quite sure you can do it until you do it
0: yeah And none of these guys know they can do it. None of them done it before. So you don't know until you know.
1: But that's what makes watching this thing play out so fascinating is you don't know, whereas you do know Osaka can do it. You do know that, well, you you know Serena could do it before having a child. What's kind of interesting about Serena is probably the biggest question going into the rest of the open is given all the scar tissue of 0 for 4 in the last four major finals since coming back from Mm -hmm. maternity leave, can Serena have what it takes to win one? And maybe without the craziness of the New York crowd, that might help her more than anybody, given what she's been through on Ash in her career. It's fascinating.
0: Yeah. What What do you think of watching the... You've been a part of broadcast coverage of slams for a long time now what is it and I, I know obviously you haven't done the french open i'm guessing for a while because it's a tennis channel coverage right. and nbc for can. a while so you have you have had some outside perspective but what's it like watching the broadcast not being there what do you, do you see things differently about how the sport is covered how the stories are told uh that you didn't really appreciate before now that you're solely consumer of it largely not not solely but primarily a consumer of it instead of being right on the ground but, do, do you well, do you does your yeah. vision shift do you see things in a different way than you did before
1: Well, I think you kind of look think about the Olympic model of how the Olympics was maybe the first sports property that really figured out how to to tell the story of sometimes an amateur athlete Mm -hmm. that somebody had never heard of, but their story was so phenomenal. So I feel like everybody during the pandemic has had to become better storytellers. Mm -hmm. And I actually feel what I'm hearing on ESPN, I feel like the, the group's been telling really quite good stories. And also, I think it's very important right now to bring humor onto the air and not take it all seriously. Like I was trying to think today, there were some, there've been some funny moments. I haven't written them down, but I think whenever I laugh out loud and I've I've known, I've been with ESPN 30 years, I know some of the people like Chrissy since 78 and Cliffy and Mary Jo since she joined the tour. So you go back decades with people and you know, like the little, even sometimes the subtle digs, because you know, sort of the behind the scenes humor too. But I think I've laughed more actually as a viewer, even though I know the inside scoop of these, uh, of the folks. So I don't know, I think storytelling and being able to provide entertainment with, with humor while athletic competition is taking place has really been important.
0: Yeah. Now I've been watching a bunch of the world features, you know, on ESPN plus watching pick your court coverage. And there's been a, there've been several Mary Crilla matches I've watched and her ability to keep things, <laughs> yeah. have it just be like an open mic night for her and keep it while still staying on topic, but being irreverent and just fun. And I do think in this moment where there's no crowd, there's no, you know, you have to kind of manufacture the fun in a lot of ways. And, and yes, I think because that's you, been- Yes, they're,
1: they're broadcasting. They're not even sitting next to each other the way you could play off one another. And, and you're like, yeah. you know, you're, you're two feet, three feet apart. Now you're in a different room. So it, it for people at home, you have to realize this is like no other event anybody's ever covered. And I feel like because our ESPN, the core group's been together so long and, and we almost can finish each other's sentences, which you should never do because it, it hurts. That's the other thing you do notice at home is whenever somebody interrupts somebody, it just doesn't, you know, doesn't sound right. So that's something I hope when I come back after the ex- experience and I'm, I'm working again normally that I never interrupt anybody again.
0: That's a good, it's that's a good, that's a good resolution. Speaking of your time on tour again, you were very active, especially I think later in your career in the WTA, uh, which was before it was the tours sort of merged. And there's a lot of talk at this tournament with this professional tennis players association, PTPA that Djokovic and Vasek Pospisil are starting up. Now, you were, as somebody who was a president of a player association for a long time, they're sort of talking about reverting to, I guess, a previous, closer to a previous model, right, before tournaments and the players got together under one roof, organizationally, so to speak. You're still, I know, you know, close with WTA and a lot of, tour in a lot of ways. What do you make of of this sort of re-energizing of of a player association model? Because it's something you were pretty familiar with as a, you know, president of the players.
1: So obviously when the athlete feels that their voice isn't being heard clearly or heard enough and and has lost too much of the power, this is like a natural evolution where you'll get some leaders. I was just reading actually a book about Billie Jean and about uh, going back to the late 60s when uh, tennis became open and what happened with the prize money. Uh, decisions and the whole thing about the original nine because we're in the 50th anniversary of the original nine who broke Mm -hmm. away and signed the one dollar contract so i tennis history just repeats itself i mean i was there 30 years ago playing in the open when they started the atp tour um which is i think pretty much what the current governance is but in the end the athlete probably felt like they lost their voice and at a time because of social media at a time when actually athletes are gaining a bigger voice. We've seen it with you know, all of the Black Lives Matter and the way athletes are using their platform to have a voice. Yeah. If they feel like an important part of their life, they don't have the voice, then I can understand. But I, I still think for Novak, I, I understand it was like the only time in, you know, since you know, February that people could get together in person and he, he looked they looked at it as the time that they should do this in hindsight, to have done it at the U.S. Open for a major that had done everything possible to have the major during a pandemic, and then to put, put that on his plate, on top of trying to win number 18, was just too much for him. And, and I kind of wish they just kept it, kept negotiating, kept behind scenes, and figured it out quietly and, instead of the way they did it.
0: Are, are, you, are you hinting then, I guess, that you think that having being stretched kind of thin in this way was possibly a factor in how his tournament ended. Yeah, for sure.
1: I mean, I, that was the first thing when I was gave my two minutes of perspective, I went back to January actually in what Novak went through. He was on our set after he won like a second round match, happened to bring up Kobe Bryant and how Kobe had been a mentor to him through the years and the Mamba mentality. And then two days later, we woke up to that tragic news. Um, and then you think about everything that, you know, obviously Novak was able to win that tournament. And then within six, seven weeks, the tours just shut down. He puts on his, his own tour that becomes so controversial without any protocol, no social distancing, no masks, all the players who ended up getting it, including himself. Little did we know he was planning, along with Pothwassil and whoever else behind the scenes, this player association launch. And then you're trying to show up at a, at, a, at a very different major under a lot of stress. I think a lot of us have stress and anxiety that we don't even know is there because of the pandemic. I mean, it's just there. I mean, he's got two kids. He's got a wife. He's, got, he's close to the rest of his family. So I just saw his temperament, even in Cincinnati, played in New York. I never saw his mind or his temperament was never quite right. And you could see the slow meltdown during that match. Actually, it wasn't that slow. I mean, he whacked the side panel. He lost like eight points in a row. He had the fall. He had the shoulder treated. It was like like he had a – I mean, it wasn't a huge breakdown as far as what he did. It just happened to be, you know, the most unlucky strike. But it was like totally laid out there probably because of – he was just taking on too much.
0: Yeah. It's unlucky, but not out of nowhere at the same time. Correct. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think, I think you're right. I, I've referred to that too. And I think on the podcast and just in general life, This sort of ambient stress in the world right now. There's all this, you know, in the air, just you can feel the tension of everything. Lots of different dimensions, obviously pandemic, Economy, politics, whatever parts of it. Yeah, all the election in this country.
1: The election um, right now. Living in Southern California, I'll tell you another huge thing is fire. What's going on with the fire season? Which was another reason, Ben, why I was. We had to evacuate last year for a whole month, the end of October Mm. till mid-December. You know, fire seasons out here have become, and I know Courtney, your partner on these podcasts, she's affected up in Northern California. It's so. So we have a. We have just had a horrendous Labor Day heat wave. And now we're expected to have this dreaded Santa Ana winds come in. And, mm. you know, there's a fire now that broke out. Not too many canyons over for me today. So put, put all this on. Plus, I'm trying to make sure three kids get all straight A's. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway, I, I got to keep exercising every day. I got to keep, you know, eating well. And just the U.S. Open has been a little bit of a vacation for me, actually, to kind of get away from the day-to-day life of a pandemic.
0: And it looks like we're going to get another vacation relatively soon with the French Open, at least from a a watching perspective.
1: Yeah, Um, it's a bit of a... see how that
0: goes. It's very, very... Right around the corner. It's very soon. Yes. I'm concerned about that, but...
1: uh... I think we all do. I think we all wish that the French had been really good partners from the beginning. And I'm sure they now have spoken a lot to the U.S. Open. They're probably on the phone every day. But I wish that they had been more on the same wavelength so that the players could have a similar situation with the bubble from one major to the next.
0: And the fans, that's what makes me nervous about the French Open too, having thousands of fans on site. It's after seeing how, yes, you're right, having one positive test for COVID with just Benoit Paire. That's pretty miraculous in the whole. I think I think I think it up, that one test I think had knocked down more dominoes than it probably needed to in terms of Medenovic and Manarino and the other sort of shrapnel from that one test that wound up hitting right. other people in the tournament. But having only one positive test or only one player test positive, I believe pair tested positive repeatedly. But yeah, so, it, that's that's pretty good. And yeah, French so Open makes me nervous. An
1: interesting thought. I feel like right now they should stop testing the players just quietly because <laughs> they. They've kept it really safe in the bubble. I just can't imagine. I mean, th- the way 2020 has been is my nightmare. The nightmare is like the night before a final or, or, or you know, you get one of your finalists and they come up with a positive test. It's like, I hope there's a plan in place where everybody's already had their last test and maybe they had in the little tiny writing of the protocol during the second week. We're only going to test at the beginning of the week and then that's it. Because the, I'm telling you, 2020 just keeps throwing junk at us, and I don't want to have—I don't want to have a curveball late in this tournament.
0: Well, speaking of curveballs, have you been watching much Orioles lately? They had a good start to their year.
1: Oh, they did have a good start. They did have a good start. They haven't had a good month. The last three, no. four weeks hasn't been very good. But um, you know what? I have my Oriole um, encyclopedia up behind me and um, you know, I've been a minority owner. Gosh, it'll be coming up on 30 years uh, oh. in a couple of years. So I still enjoy them and one year it'll be our small market turn to do well.
0: There you go. Well, from a, as a DC kid who grew up as a Orioles fan, when the, before the Nats, Shut up thank you just why
1: we sued MLB we (laughs) lost all of you fans I'm
0: still I'm still an Orioles fan I I was I never changed colors on that I I'm still an Orioles fan which is not necessarily served me well recently in terms of winning but oh just quickly uh, anniversary
1: we got to talk the anniversary weekend of Cal Ripken 2131
0: I was at 2130 I was at 2130 yeah
1: I was there too Chanda Rubin and I won a doubles match in the early afternoon, I asked the USTA if they would schedule me my doubles early, and they did. And I hopped on an Amtrak train, got down, went to the tie-breaking game, slept in my own bed, got up, took an early train back. We, unfortunately, ran into Gigi and Natasha. So that was the end of our run. I think it was a quarter. Then I went back to the train station and uh, caught twenty-one thirty-one. Oh, that's tremendous. Yeah, that was fun.
0: Well, thank you very much, Pam, for being on here. They can make time in your busy day. Good luck with your kids. Three different schools, you said, right? For your kids in remote yes. learning. That's, that's, wow. That's. Yeah, a... but
1: you know, it's one schoolhouse right now. So we're, we're, we're fine so far. Once all those campuses are open and I don't know, we'll figure that out later. But Ben, thank you and all the best to all your viewers. May everybody stay hey, safe and healthy.
0: Thank you, Pam. So thank you very much to Pam. As I record this, Pablo Crenio busta and Dennis Shepoval are starting a fifth set on Arthur Ashe Stadium. Jen Brady. Naomi Osaka and Sasha Zverev, already winners today in singles quarterfinal matches. And we want to thank you guys for being winners in our book every day, for listening to the show, and for supporting NCR as so many of you do on Patreon. We do not have ads on NCR. We never have had ads on NCR. So this is the support that keeps us going. That so many listeners have stepped up to support us has been really, really overwhelming during this whole year, and especially during this last couple weeks of the U.S. Open and the U.S. Open lead up when people really came out of the woodwork. So if you are also still in the woodwork and wanted to come out of the woodwork and want to join us at patreon.com slash no challenges remaining, that would be awesome. We have several new backers to thank on today's show. They include Saf Ali, Amy Suskind, and Ethan Ampel, or Ampel. Ethan, thank you. Amy, thank you. And Saf, thank you very much for your support of NCR. And we also get to thank our Patreon Slam Champ backers. We thank on every episode – Liz Kendall, Jonathan Weinbaum, Mary Carrillo, Chuang Nguyen, Betty, Audrey Wellens, Sean Mulroy, Joseph Haar, Susanna W., and Antonio May Cumber, as well as our GOAT backers, Mike, Charles Cena, and J.O.D. That'll do it from us, from me in D.C. and Pam and Courtney in California. Bye, guys.